And so when you talk about criminal justice reform, we want to keep our police in our communities. We, we do believe in being policed. We know that they provide a measure of safety. We just don't want to continuously be over-policed. Uh, there is acknowledgement uh, of the challenges that we face and also a desire to, uh, to try to work together on finding solutions. Uh, I would say that, you know, that we, we still have to try to craft the best possible policy we can and be realistic about what some of our limitations are. Welcome to the Cloudcast. I'm Joel Ebert. I'll be your host this week. The 101st General Assembly wrapped up last week after a whirlwind multi-day lame duck session that saw the passage of a comprehensive multi-prong legislative package from the Illinois Legislative Black Caucus. It was aimed at eliminating systemic racism in the state. The caucus's approved legislation covered a variety of topics, ranging from police and criminal justice reforms to issues aimed at fixing disparities in education, business, and the economy. The bills that were drafted were complex and written and rewritten as negotiations continued throughout the lame duck session. The legislation was hundreds of pages long, so there's a lot to unpack. To help do that, you'll hear from Senate Majority Leader Kimberly Lightford, a Maywood-based Democrat who played a key role in advancing the Black Caucus's agenda from its formation to its passage. One of the more controversial proposals from the Black Caucus relates to a massive omnibus bill that seeks to make changes to policing and criminal justice in Illinois. It does everything from eliminating cash bail and limiting the ability of law enforcement agencies to buy military weapons to implementing a statewide body camera system and use of force standards. In the interview, Leader Lightford discusses some of the negotiations that took place over the controversial bill, which law enforcement agencies heavily criticized. It passed the House with the bare minimum of 60 votes. Later on the podcast, I sit down with Representative Tom Demmer, a Republican House member from Dixon who offers his insights on the now-finished lame duck session and what life will look like in a post-Mike Madigan-led Illinois House. For clarity, both interviews were recorded on Friday, January 15th. They've been edited down for time. Heading into the session, uh, last week, uh, you told me uh, that the Black Caucus agenda would be the, the heart and soul of the session. Um, that appears to have been the case. What do you think of the overall effort by the, the Black Caucus? How did it fare? Well, the overall effort was uh, tremendous, and I am just so proud of my colleagues and I. We spent the last seven months uh, hundreds of hours developing this bold, transformative agenda to address the deep roots of systemic racism and their lasting impact on all Illinoisans, um, and particularly Black Americans, Latinos, and those from marginalized communities. Um, I believe that we worked hard enough, we developed solid policy, and we were able to be successful as a result. There were some tweaks along the way of, of a couple of the main bills, but for the most part, the main components remained intact. Um, the, the most significant pushback, at least from, uh, from, you know, an outside's perspective, seemed to be over the criminal justice and police reform package. 
um, when law enforcement agencies were arguing that it would make communities less safe. I know throughout the session, you and others said that that was a false claim. For, for our listeners that haven't heard that, why is that a false claim in your mind that that legislation will make communities less safe? Well, so I, I, you know, I can't, I'd have to mention Senator Sims and Representative Slaughter and their leadership on this effort as our co-chairs. Um, and they knew that we needed to come together and create this measure. They had already begun working on criminal justice reform, building out what we had done back in 2015. And so we were already in the space of buildup before the George Floyd incident actually happened. And when it did, we knew that we had to leverage that moment um, and challenge ourselves to explore every opportunity to pass this agenda so that it would bring about real change for Black and marginalized communities. And so when you talk about criminal justice reform, we want to keep our police in our communities. We we do believe in being policed. We know that they provide a measure of safety. We just don't want to continuously be over-policed and, and have excess of force used on us and be racially profiled and um, to not have the same uh, supports by the police that are giving to other communities. And so when you think about um, this effort, we knew that we needed to create a statewide use of force um, uh, standardized act so that we can establish um, some standards for law enforcement around use of force. We knew, too, that we also needed to end prison gerrymandering, um, gerrymandering, mandarin, excuse me, um, through the No Representation Without Population Act. Um, these are challenges that we faced in our communities for a long time. We wanted to then build out creating a report system of deaths of those in custody, and we wanted to create a task force um, on constitutional rights and remedies so that we can study the use of force and qualified immunity and provide a report back to the General Assembly and the governor with recommendations. So we do want to have law enforcement um, um, advice and their support and how we can begin to um, eliminate uh, this challenge that we face. And so that was a key provision there that we needed to do to continuously show that we're compromising and we're working with our law enforcement. I've got to tell you, when you're dealing with uh, community activists and groups and people who can name names of people who were murdered in their homes, in their beds, in their driveways, in their garage that had no weapons on them and et cetera, they're calling for defunding the police. And then when you're dealing with police who says, hey, hey, don't do anything, we, we want to leave status quo, no changes at all, then you find Black legislators in the middle saying, hey, we have to strike a balance where we're protecting our communities, but we're also making sure that um, you have the services and the ability to do what is needed to keep us safely policed. So we never took on this idea of defund the police, that 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 is not the effort of the Black Caucus. And, and throughout the, the lame duck session, there were admittedly there was work being done behind the scenes, it seemed like, on, on you know, the, the uh, criminal justice legislation as well as others. But one of the uh, things that that kind of ended up coming out of those negotiations, it seemed to be were some tweaks, right, um, to make the end of cash bail 
uh, not immediately effective. Uh, I believe mm -hmm. that, that included to delay it by two years uh, per uh, recommendations from, I know, uh, you know, a couple of folks that were kind of worried about an immediate concern. And then I thought there was another component that was to uh, get rid of the component to eliminate qualified immunity. Are those two things um, that you kind of viewed as just Again, this is kind of the striking the proper balance between community concern and law enforcement concern and you guys in the middle. Absolutely. Um, we did work with the state's attorney's office and uh, all law enforcement to uh, work in how can we address cash bail um, and make sure that it will be implemented properly and that it would be meaningful and impactful to to the, the need of our community. Um, we worked and worked with those groups and they came up and helped us with the compromise where we still had a heavy sticking point that took us until six in the morning the next day that we were still on the Senate floor passing this measure from the previous day was because when you look at qualified immunity and you have law enforcement saying absolutely no, do nothing, we know that that is unacceptable. And so the effort that we created by creating this task force is to say, hey, why don't we all sit down and work on this for the next four months and come up with a solution by May 1st that can be recommended back to the General Assembly. And then that way we can go in um, on this together and come up with these recommendations that we can file by um, the end of this spring's uh, General Assembly. So there is a provision um, which would have removed qualified immunity for individual police officers, potentially exposing them to civil lawsuits. Um, that was eliminated from the new version of the bill, and it created a task force in its place so that we can study the Constitutional Rights and Remedies Act um, um, together um, with law enforcement. Um, but we also wanted to make sure when we, in 2015, when we said, hey, there has to be body cameras worn, you cannot just turn off your camera when you want to hide the dirt that you're doing or turn off the volume. That's the point of having the camera. Mm -hmm. And so we want to make sure that official misconduct for employees of law enforcement agencies who knowingly fail to turn on an officer body camera or in the midst of it, turn it off. Uh, um, an officer worn body camera um, it's, it's important that when there is a reasonable opportunity to act in a manner that is consistent with the officer warm body camera policy, that they follow the policy. And so that had a small challenge to it. But again, you know, we worked with law enforcement, Senator Sims, Representative Slaughter, State at the negotiation table, uh, worked with um, every component of law enforcement from FOP to the sheriffs, to the uh, police chiefs, um, to the state's attorneys to make sure that we provided what we thought was needed, but that they also could have some buy-in. No one wants um, all of the sergeants to walk off. No one wants, you know, all of the, 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 the levels of administration to say, hey, this it, I quit. You know, I'm not going right. to police these communities. Again, we want them to remain in our communities policing us, but we also must put parameters in place that we're not being overly policed and we're being treated fairly.
So with this massive push now in, in sort of the rearview mirror, um, it hasn't been signed by the governor, but all the indications seem that he will be signing these, um, you know, the host of legislation that was passed. Um, what's next for the Black Caucus? What are you what are you guys looking at? Well, I've got to tell you, um, I've got to follow this through. Um, for me, um, as a Senate majority leader, it's important that implementation follows through. Um, I learned so much through, during our subject matter hearings um, that just showed me as the administration's change, so did the perspectives. So even if we passed a bill out of both chambers, it was signed by the governor, a lot of the things that we've talking about now just were never implemented. Mm -hmm. And had they been implemented, I believe our communities would be in a better position than where we were. I found laws that senators passed in the early 90s that were never implemented, that that I just dug up old language and mm -hmm. just brought it into the 21st century, by golly, and had to implement it. So for me, I'm the watchdog. I am going to ensure that all of the areas that need to be implemented, that I follow up with the agency directors, that um, I make sure that the statute is being properly followed, and then all of the commissions and task force that I put in place where the General Assembly will receive recommendations, I have a list of all of those so that I can follow the, the deadline dates when those items are returned in for recommendations so then we can know where to go from there. Um, being the Senate Majority Leader allows me to attend all of these meetings without being the appointed person. So that will be my biggest challenge. This um, session is kind of staying on top of what we just accomplished. There's no way we can vote, get this past the governor signing, and then we walk away from right. it. Absolutely no way. So I'm asking all of the Black Caucus members to stay vigilant uh, with what we've accomplished. Um, a lot of House members had individual bills that that created the omnibus package. And so they need to make sure that they follow through as well. Um, so hopefully, um, just honest to God, prayerfully, that when all of these come together, um, they're all connected in some way um, and we'll be able to have a lasting and meaningful impact on children for generations to come. So there's a lot of work that has to be done in so many places that I can't begin to even celebrate this. It's, it's still a continuation. With the passage of, of the Black Caucus agenda and the election of, of uh, Speaker Welch, the, the first black speaker of the House of Representatives in Illinois, do you think the state is entering sort of a new era of government, which, uh, you know, frankly, by many people's perspective, has been dominated by white, uh, some would say heavy handed politicians? Well, first, I just want to congratulate uh, Representative Welch um, and congratulate not only the Black Caucus, but um, just to congratulate the all of my colleagues in the House who had to take part of an election, um, given just the few days that they had to vet that out. I know it was challenging, and I'm proud of them for just sticking with it and getting it done. Um, I'm, I'm excited that we do have our first African-American uh, Speaker of the House, considering it's been over 200 years in existence, um, and there have been all 
all types of people in this state, um, but never representation other than uh, Caucasian males. I don't even know if there's been a woman at all um, um, to that point. Um, and so your question, do I think that we're moving to a different um, place of governing? I, I feel that I can see it um, to some degrees. I sense it. Um, I just know that the needs are changing um, more rapidly as we do our census and we draw our maps. Um, people are moving around the state and not being compounded into certain communities where that is just a black community and no other people or that is just a Caucasian community and no others or or Latinos aren't confined to just their space. You know, people are beginning to venture outside of those rule of thumbs that you can't live on this side of town or you can't live in that community. And, and that's why there will be more uh, diversity in the state. And that brings more diversity to um, our state legislature because representation should be diverse and it should be for all people to be accounted for. And I think that's more so of where we're moving into and we're beginning to receive uh, We this last um, uh, election brought um, our, our first Asians as well. Um, not the election we just was sworn in, but two years ago, um, Senator Vili Vallum, um, was our first senator who's, uh, of the Asian, um, population. And then there's also a house member of the Asian population. Um, the Latino population is growing and, um, and then also, um, um, the Chinatown, you know, the Chinese community wants their own representation, you know, and it's only fair that they're able to have someone here that can speak to their lifestyle and their needs. And so, you know, the more that we begin to diversify um, our state, the more representation under the dome should be diversified as well. Joining me now is Representative Tom Demmer uh, in the House. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, happy to talk to you, Joel. Thanks. So um, I wanted to kick off with, you know, here we are. The dust has finally settled in the uh, now complete 101st General Assembly after a uh, whiplash uh, sudden lame duck session. Um, now that you're somewhat recovered, um, what is your impression of some of the work that you guys did during it? Well, you know, there were some good things um, and some things that were concerning. Uh, you know, this is the first time that we've been back in Springfield since May of last year. Uh, so a longer uh, intermission than what we typically have during our legislative sessions. And it was difficult uh, during that time to um, do some of the typical work that would happen uh, in terms of policy development and negotiations. You know, obviously, this year has been a challenge on <laughs> for a lot of people, uh, you know, having to adapt to remote working. And the legislature was no different with that. Uh, but then we ended up coming back for a lame duck session uh, that even the first couple of days of lame duck session were pretty quiet. And then uh, suddenly there was uh, people became aware of the ticking clock. And we ended up uh, pulling some of the longest days that, that I really have ever been a part of down there, um, passing some really significant legislation, um, uh, you know, that, that had been talked about uh, from both sides of the aisle. Arguably, the most significant stuff that was discussed during it was broad, 
by the Illinois uh, Legislative Black Caucus. While there were some components of it that were supported by Republicans, including, I believe, the, the legislation to cap the interest rate for certain loans at 36 percent, uh, the more closely watched bills were sort of the criminal justice reform, policing uh, reforms. Uh, those were opposed by Republicans. Why? Well, you know, those were not just opposed by Republicans, but also opposed by a huge number of um Units of local government, of uh, law enforcement agencies, sheriff's departments, state's attorney's offices, police departments, organized labor representing those um, individuals in law enforcement. So there was a lot of concern about the uh, number of changes that were in that legislation. And uh, I think some frustration from um, some law enforcement groups that they weren't really given an opportunity to discuss alternatives um, and they felt like, you know, only at the last minute was their uh, was their voice heard. And, uh, you know, sitting in, in a committee room or on the, the convention center floor this week, we heard from quite a few of those individuals who testified about uh, the very real challenges that that a bill like this poses to law enforcement officers. And, and you know, I mean, some of the other uh, major pieces were related to health care, uh, the economy. Arguably, the Black Caucus said that they wanted to do this legislative package to eliminate systemic racism in Illinois. I hadn't heard too much discussion from a Republican perspective on that. Was there, you know, I mean, do members of the party concede that there is systemic racism in Illinois? And, And is this the right way of going about, I guess, addressing and eliminating that? Well, I think we have seen quite a bit of systemic racism, you know, across the entire country. Um, some really, you know, the data, I think, shows you a lot about the disparate uh, outcomes that people have, um, people of color have, and the, some of the, the unique challenges that, that they face. Uh, and, you know, I, I've tried to be supportive working on some bills that uh, help address that. Uh, one example, a, a bill that passed with bipartisan support this week, uh, was a program to invest uh, new funds in healthcare transformation in some of the most disadvantaged communities and communities of color, communities that have been disproportionately impacted by COVID. Um, there, that's been, you know, I spend a lot of time working on healthcare policy, and that was a great example of one where we said we recognize that uh, people of color in Illinois or people living in, in certain zip codes in Illinois have lower life expectancy than people living in other areas. What can we do to, to make new investments in some of those communities and improve uh, health outcomes? So I think, you know, there is acknowledgement uh, of the challenges that we face and also a desire to uh, to try to work together on finding solutions. Uh, I would say that, you know, that we, we still have to try to craft the best possible policy we can and be realistic about what some of our limitations are. Another healthcare proposal that uh, the Black Caucus offered this week um, you know, included some items that I think were positive, but also uh, a community health worker program that was estimated to cost between a billion and three billion dollars a year. We have to be realistic about the financial state that Illinois finds itself in. Even before COVID, we had challenges. And so, you know, we're, we're trying to be measured in how we can intervene here and, and understand that, um, you know, there are other priorities that we have to try to, to juggle together. Much of uh, sort of the pushback that I know that um, people were kind of warning against was how much and comprehensive these bills were and doing it in such a, a short period of time. Uh, just worried about what what 
what's in this, right? People haven't had much time to read it. Can you explain uh, a little bit of that for listeners who weren't tuned in during the, the process? Now, this was a, a fast evolving circumstance this week. Um, we had bills that, um, uh, you know, very, very long comprehensive bills that were introduced just a couple of days before our session was scheduled to begin. So I mean, we haven't been in since May. We, we could have had a little bit more time to be able to read through and digest what was in these bills. That wasn't the case this year. Uh, but then also there was a series of amendments that were adding provisions or removing provisions or changing definitions, you know, making substantive changes to a bill. And uh, it was it was difficult. It was very difficult this week to um, understand when a bill was being debated in committee or debated on the floor. Uh, what exactly was the contents of that bill? Uh, I, I think, you know, it's, typically that can be challenging. It was even more challenging given the limited staff that was available, given the very late hour of the day that some of these were being offered, uh, given the, the limited ability for, um, you know, the, the kinds of advocates uh, and uh, individuals who are typically at the Capitol to testify and to talk with people and give fact sheets out and things like that. So it made it very difficult this year to to know, uh, exactly what was in these proposals that were broad and far reaching and in some cases had you know s- certain provisions that were extremely concerning to people we had to check you know two and three times to ensure we knew exactly what was uh, part of those bills before we voted so sort of moving on from the policy end of things uh much of the session was overshadowed by the intrigue over the speaker's race um although it it appeared heading into it the speaker madigan didn't have the votes Things developed fairly quickly that ultimately led to the election of of Representative Welch. Were you surprised that uh, at one point essentially Madigan ceded power or had you kind of had he, I guess, seen the writing on the wall? Well, you know, when there were 19 House Democrats who had um, indicated last year, late last year, that they would not support um, Mike Madigan for reelection as speaker. I took them at their word. Uh, you know, those were public statements. That wasn't uh, that wasn't just the intrigue or the rumor or the backroom, you know, whispering that that happened. Um, there were 19 people who came out publicly and said that that was their decision. And so, you know, I, I had long believed that we would be moving in a different direction because um, those individuals I didn't think were likely to change their mind. And that's what happened. So, you know, when when it became apparent that that group was not going to be uh, flipping on their public statements, the search had to begin for who's the next candidate, you know, who, who besides um, uh, Mike Madigan could get the, the required number of votes. And so we saw a little bit of back and forth, a couple of people enter a race and then drop out and, um, you know, all those moving pieces. But um, I, I think that going into the week, I, I did not expect that uh, Mike Madigan would be reelected speaker because of the statements of my colleagues. In, in their first floor speeches, uh, Speaker Welch and Republican leader Jim Durkin uh, sort of struck this call for bipartisanship cooperation. Um, what does that look like in your view? And how do Republicans, you guys who are so used to uh, standing up and, and pushing back against the Madigan uh, led, you know, Democratic chamber, uh, how do you embrace that now? Well, you know, I've said before, I think that even more important than who is in the speaker's chair is what are the rules of the House? Uh, that's incredibly important for, uh, you know, any legislator on either side of the aisle, their ability to introduce uh, legislation, get a fair vote up or down on that legislation and move it along in the process. 
And for far too long, uh, you know, as Speaker Madigan had been in power for almost, you know, four decades in the Speaker's chair, those rules had become more and more centered on his individual power and less about empowering the entire legislature and giving, you know, each duly elected representative um, their ability to to use authority within the chamber. And so I think that'll be the big question as uh, as Speaker Welsh begins uh, considering what the rules of the House will look like going forward. Are they going to be concentrated around one individual or is this going to be a more open and democratic chamber that will allow each individual legislator to have uh, a larger prerogative? Does the the exit of Madigan and and possible you know uh, shift in power does that change the dynamic where I mean you guys often were able to uh, in both campaigns but also on on you know legislation be able to kind of group all the Democrats together under the you know the leadership of Madigan how does that change the ability of Republicans I guess to effectively have a message of standing up, you know, to um, something that's no longer, uh, uh, you know, led by Madigan anymore. Well, I think it wasn't just about standing up to Madigan as a person. It was many of the the things that he represented, right? It was the years of unbalanced budgets. It was denying Illinoisans the ability to uh, vote on fair maps of fair legislative redistricting process. Um, It was a, you know, one man rule sort of through, intimidation and bullying and, you know, every political trick in the book. Um, and so I think the question is going to be, you know, how how well can the entire House move on from that era? Uh, what what can we do to show that the people of Illinois, that there is really a new day in leadership and a new uh, chapter being written? Um, at, at the same time, you know, Mike Madigan remains chairman of the Democratic Party of Illinois. And so and, and still controls millions of dollars in campaign contributions uh, across a couple of different political committees. And so there's also a, an open question about uh, to what extent does he continue to be involved in the direction of the Democratic Party in Illinois? And at what point do uh, elected Democrats at all levels of government in Illinois say enough is enough? We uh, you know, we have to turn the page here, too, because uh, the you know, the, the leadership that Mike Madigan represents is. Uh, no longer a leadership that I think the majority of Illinoisans would support. That's it for this week's episode of the Cloudcast. Special thanks to Senate Majority Leader Kimberly Lightford and Representative Tom Demmer. Daily Line reporters Aaron Haggerty and Alex Nitkin will be back in two weeks with me for a new episode of the Cloudcast.